If I speak in the tongues of mortals and of angels but do not have love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but do not have love, I'm nothing. If I give away all my possessions, if I hand over my body so that I may boast but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not envious or boastful or arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will come to an end. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will come to an end. For we know only in part, and we prophesy only in part. But when the complete comes, the partial will come to an end. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became an adult, I put an end to childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then we will see face to face. Now I know only in part, then I will know fully, even as I have been fully known. And now faith, hope, and love abide. These three, and the greatest of these is love. This is the word of the Lord. Let's remind ourselves the Roman legions marched on Corinth in the year 146 before the Common Era. Absolutely destroyed the city. All the men were rounded up and murdered. All of the women and children were rounded up and sold into slavery. Corinth lay in ruins for 102 years. At that point, Julius Caesar decided that this really was a great spot for a port, that it could become a great Roman port, and so he sent retired veterans of the Roman armies to reestablish the city. And 94 years after it was reestablished, the Apostle Paul arrived. Paul came to tell the people of Corinth, who were heathen and pagan, that there is only one God, and this God has revealed Himself most clearly in Jesus of Nazareth. And He has revealed Himself through this Jesus of Nazareth to any and all who will come to Him. Paul moved on after 18 to 24 months. We're not sure exactly how long he was in Corinth, but there's evidence he was there from 18 to 24 months. He moved on to establish other churches. And he kept hearing that there was great dissension in the church at Corinth. Some of the churches he founded seemed to have gotten along very well. Its members supportive of each other. The folks in Corinth, quarrelsome. Quarrelsome. And one of the things they quarreled about was the gifts of the Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit comes and gifts you, who has the greatest gift? Who has the least gift? Who has medium-sized gifts? After last Sunday's lecture where he talked about how gifts are very much like the body, how can a hand say it does not need the foot? How can an eye say it does not need the ear? How can the head say it does not need the rest of the body? All of these parts, he said, are very important. And then we come to the text for today. I think to understand chapter 13, you need to read the last verse of chapter 12. Remember that Paul did not write in chapter and verse. He wrote a letter. It was years later that people decided 
Well, we all need to be able to reference the same sentence, so let's divide this holy writ into chapter and verse. Paul didn't write that way, so to understand chapter 13, you need to read the last verse of chapter 12. And what he says to the Corinthians at that point is, now I will show you a more excellent way. I will show you a better way than you've been living. And then begins chapter 13. So the first point I want to make this morning is that we have to want with all of our hearts a better way. In the New Christian Century magazine, there was an editorial. Um, Authorship was not ascribed. There was no byline. Um, I suspect it was written by Dr. John Buchanan. He's the editor of the Christian Century. He's the pastor who came to our church in the Barton Clinton Gordy series some years ago. He still pastors the Fourth Presbyterian Church in Chicago, one of America's truly great churches. He does write a column every time Christian Century appears every other week, but he didn't put a byline on this one. So I'm not sure, but it was a very interesting piece. It said that in most of our mainline churches, we pray the Lord's Prayer every week. But there's one line, he said, that we pray ought to pray as if it were a lament. And that's the line about, Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Because we are so far from being there. We've had 2,000 years and the Jews 2,000 years before that and we aren't there. We are far from there. Christian Century is produced and published out of Chicago. Chicago's had some problems lately, as you can know from the news. Uh, They've had a governor who was dismissed from office this week. But what was really discouraging about that to me was that the day they were voting on whether to put him out of office or not, I had a meeting in Oklahoma City. Uh, I was with the investment committee of our United Methodist Foundation there. When our meeting was over, I was driving back to Tulsa. I turned on NPR radio, and they were talking about the fact that uh, the governor of Illinois had made his last speech after he said he wouldn't participate. He did come and make a speech and then got on the plane and flew back from Springfield to Chicago. Now they were waiting for the vote. And this moderator was saying, any of you in Illinois who want to call in and tell us what you think, we'd be glad to hear from you. And person after person said... I do not think he should be dismissed from office because he has only acted the way every other Chicago and Illinois politician acts. He just got caught. It was amazing. Voters, women and men, old and young, calling in. As I drove from Oklahoma City to Tulsa, I don't think he ought to be dismissed. He's just like everybody else. And that's supposed to make us feel good. He's just like everybody else. We read daily about the abuses of some of our biggest companies in America. You and I are being asked to bail out company after company, and it seems that's the only way we're going to get ourselves on solid footing again. And then we hear about how some of these people do such things to excess. John Thane fell under that critical eye recently. Merrill Lynch had fallen into real problems financially, had to be rescued by Bank of America. They had so many huge losses that the government, you and I, in effect, had to bail out Bank of America. Its stock has gone from $60 to 6 in the last year. 
People who were counting on it for its dividend, it was paying about $2 and a half. It will now pay one penny per share per quarter. And we find out that when Mr. Thane became head of Merrill Lynch just two years ago in all these troubles, he had his office redecorated to the tune of $1.2 million. We are far from there. We are far from the kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. We are far from doing the will of God on earth as it is in heaven. Wiley Driscoll lives down at Pearland, Texas. He recently told a story that he was in one of the taller buildings in Houston. Pearland's right out near Hobby Airport. Uh, He said he was coming down the elevator, one of the large buildings in Houston. The doors opened and a young woman started to get on the elevator. He said she was sort of humming along and tossing her keys into the air. And just as she started to step on the elevator, the key fell right through the crack. And he said, I was feeling really sorry for her until I heard her say, Oh, no, not again. (laughs) And that's the problem, you see, that we do the same old things and think we're going to get a different result. But when we do the same old things, we're going to get the same old results. And so this chapter 13 will mean nothing to us if we are not ready for a better way. A better way. Let me show you a better way, Paul says. And then he goes to this lengthy discussion that I read with you and comes to this conclusion. There are three things that are more important than all the rest. Hear me, he says. Three things abide, continue, will never end. Number one, faith. So this is point two in the sermon, if you're following along here. This is faith. Faith has a synonym, trust. Trust that God has in fact acted on our behalf in the past. God Almighty has already acted in our behalf. And the church is reminding people in Sunday school and worship week after week after week of what God has done in the past. We're telling God's story. I pray with this choir. I pray with the chancel choir every Sunday morning. And I remind them we're coming upstairs now to help God tell God's story, to help God tell God's story. I told you a couple of weeks ago that Terry Teachout is a critic that, whose writings I enjoy. Uh, he's a drama critic primarily, that is live theater. And he had a, a review just recently of Tennessee Williams' The Glass Menagerie. Um, I'm sure you've all had opportunity to see that. Gail and I have seen it several times. It's been produced locally several times since we've been in Tulsa. Tennessee Williams' play that was first produced in 1945. Hard to imagine, more than 60 years ago now. It's a story you recall about a mother, a son, a daughter, and a gentleman caller. There are just four people in this play. The family live in a very modest little tenement. The son, whom many believe is Tennessee Williams, as it were, that Tennessee Williams is the son, uh, that, that the son is angry at the poverty of the family. There's no father here. There's no father to help. Uh, this was a time when women and mothers didn't work much in the, in the workplace. 
so it's a really difficult time. He resents this poverty. He resents needing to look after his mother and a crippled sister. He just wants to run away and decides maybe he can make some difference in their lives before he runs away if he finds for his crippled sister a gentleman caller, somebody who might love her and marry her, rescue her, if you would. Uh, the glass menagerie, this sister of his, collects little glass figurines. Not expensive ones, they don't have the money for that, but little glass figurines that mean so much to her. The gentleman caller finally comes because Tom has begged him to come and he's nice to the young woman and she gets all encouraged that maybe he really cares, but he does care, but he doesn't intend to marry her. There's nothing really serious that's going to come from this relationship. It's a tragic kind of play, but this is what I want you to hear. Terry Teachout is uh, reviewing this play in the Wall Street Journal. Uh, it's produced by one of the people he thinks is one of the very best producers, directors out of Chicago Live Theater. Uh, he's taken his cast down to Florida to produce this particular play here in the winter when there are lots of people there. And Terry writes, It's wonderful when a director pays attention to the playwright's notes. He said... Tennessee Williams wanted slides to be shown, and slide presentations were much more primitive in 1945 than we can do today. And yet, Terry said, I've seen production after production of The Glass Menagerie. I've never seen it with slides. Helping you understand a little bit how this little girl became this woman, how this little boy became this man as action continues. But he said there is another note right at the beginning of the play that says... This is a memory play. So it really is, Tennessee Williams, an autobiographical recounting of something in his past. And he says, memory should be dimly lit. Memory is always sentimental. And with memory, one always has music. Dr. Penser was talking to the staff about that this week. With memory always comes music. Think about our hymns. The God of Abram prays. A mighty fortress is our God. O oh God, our help in ages past, our hope for years to come. O oh come, O oh come, Emmanuel, we sang in December. O oh come, Emmanuel. And then we sang, go tell it on the mountain. Go tell it on the mountain. He has come. He has come. In the Lenten season, we will sing heavy, heavy music. Oh, sacred head now wounded with grief and pain weighed down. But then we'll sing, rejoice, the Lord is King. Our Lord and King adore. On Easter Sunday morning, our choirs will sing, and He shall reign forever and ever. Alleluia, alleluia, forever. Faith is believing God's story. That the One who created the heavens and the earth has chosen to reveal Himself and His will for us has initiated right relationship with us, has made right relationship possible for us. To believe that, to trust that, 
is to have the gift of faith. Number three, hope. Hope abides. Hope remains. Um, Hope is a belief in what God will do. Faith is believing in what God has done. Hope is believing that what God has begun, God will complete. God will bring to fruition. Uh, This passage is not about flimsy little things. I hope I get a bicycle. I hope I get a new video game. I hope I get a watch or something. Uh, This is about the human condition. This is about the condition of the world. This is about the condition of creation. Will God restore humankind to Himself? Will God restore humankind to each other? Will God finally bring justice and righteousness for all? Will God finally make all things right? And the affirmation is yes. Yes, He will. If you have hope, a gift of the Holy Spirit, you will believe He will. Joe Morgenstern is a, is a film critic. And he's recently commented on the Academy Award nominations, particularly the foreign language films. And the one he likes in that category is The Class. Class was made in France, in Paris. It's all in French with uh, English subtitles. But he thinks it's the best in this category, The Class. It's a true story. And it stars the young ninth grade teacher, male teacher, in an urban school in Paris. Uh, He wrote a book about his experiences with these 15-year-olds. And the person who decided to help write a screenplay and to direct decided that this young man should be that teacher in the movie and that all the students in the class should be non-actors. And their parents, family members, should be non-actors to try to help recreate in the classroom what this young teacher has in fact experienced. And for Mr. Morgenstern's uh, review, um, it sounded very much like uh, what I heard from Dr. Keith Ballard when he spoke to the Rotary this week about some of the problem areas in our schools in Tulsa, northeastern Oklahoma. Guess what? The folks in Paris are having the same problems. This urban school has uh, more than a dozen different nationality groups, more than a dozen languages being spoken at home by these students and their families. These 15-year-olds go home and there's no one there. Sometimes they spend the whole night and no adult has ever shown up. There is no supper being cooked. There is no breakfast prepared the next morning. And these young 15-year-olds bring all of that rage to school the next day. And so there's fighting, there's cursing, there's bullying, all kinds of things going on, and this young educator just keeps plowing right ahead. He's dedicated. He's disciplined. He's knowledgeable. He is a master of language, according to Morgan Stern. Most of us will have to take that uh, for granted since we don't speak French. But what he says is this, Morgan Stern, he said, there's so much hurt and pain in this school. But occasionally, occasionally, real education enters the room. One of the angriest of young men becomes interested in photographs, 
has opportunity to work with a camera and shows real talent. One young girl whom you never would have imagined would be interested in philosophy really becomes interested in Plato's Republic. One of those who is the most hateful, one of the meanest, decides that maybe these others have similar problems to his own and ought to be treated as if they bring as much hurt and pain every day as he does. Morgan Stern's conclusion. When you see this movie, he said, you will see much that's hard to bear, much that's hard to watch, but every now and then, real education takes place. It does. A light comes on. A door opens. Hope is believing in God for all that is yet to come, that God will, in fact, complete what He has begun. Number four, love abides. Love endures. Love is the greatest of them all. This is not something sentimental, remember. This is not about Valentine's Day. This is not about your favorite fraternity buddy, your favorite sorority sister. Uh, this love has to have teeth to it. This is, this is a conscious decision of the mind. I will love. I will treat people in a certain way. This love is not about me. It's about the other. What do you need? How can I help meet your need? That's what this love is about. You know that I've been a part of a Jewish-Christian dialogue group for more than 25 years. Um, some people have moved away. Some people have died. But otherwise, they've hung in there together. And when someone does move away or we lose a member of our group over a 25-year period, then others are invited to come into the group. I remember one discussion that we had about a prominent Christian minister in this country um, who was getting a lot of press and a lot of publicity um, all in a positive way. And then in one press conference, a young woman who was Jewish managed finally to, get, to ask a question after the interview was officially over. And she asked him, knowing that I'm a Jew, do you really believe I'm going to go to hell? And he said, but of course. And I mentioned that at our next group meeting. And a Jewish University of Tulsa professor said, I don't care whether he thinks I'm going to hell or not. What he thinks about that matters not to me. What does matter to me is the way he treats me, the way he treats my wife, the way he treats my kids. That matters to me. And that's what love is. Not just what you believe, not just what you feel, but what do you do? What do you do? Last night I was mulling this sermon over. I had it finished Friday afternoon, but I was mulling it over. Saturday nights I want to be by myself. But I had the television going. And it was showing some of the greatest commercials of past Super Bowls. Maybe you saw them. And one of those was a Coca-Cola commercial of 2007. 
Uh, it was about a young man who's tripping down the street, sort of skipping along, and he's helping everybody he sees. You know? uh, he sees a man running with a woman's purse, and he just grabs the purse, and as he skips along, hands it back to the woman. Uh, somebody's dropped something, he picks it up. Everything he does is making life better for someone else. And finally, he comes to two people who are wearing sort of sandwich boards saying, the end is near. And he flips the boards around and they now say, love a little longer. Love a little longer. Give love. That real stuff that agape is another chance. Father Patrick Dubois is a French Roman Catholic priest. Um, there is a whole exhibit right now at the Jewish Heritage Museum in New York uh, based on what this Roman Catholic priest has done. Um, in 2002, he decided to take his vacation time and go to the Ukraine. He knew that his grandfather was uh, made to work in a work camp in the Ukraine during World War II. And he wanted to know more about how his grandfather had lived and died there. So he went to the Ukraine to find out as much as he could about this particular work camp. And as he began to ask some of the oldest villagers what had occurred there, what he discovered was that many, many Jews had been killed there. That once the German armies invaded Russia, uh, streaming through Ukraine, they had also decided to take their hatred and killing of Jews along with them. And so, though they did not have the gas chambers and the ovens in Ukraine, uh, they had big ditches dug, uh, lined Jews up alongside the ditch and shot them uh, so they would fall back into the ditch. They even got it down to such a fine thing that uh, all the men were stripped naked and they had to go lie down in the ditch and they shot them in the back of the head and the next group had to go lie down on top of them and they shot them in the back of the heads and so on and then gradually fill them over. And what he's discovered in the last seven years is that 1.5 million Jews died in the Ukraine. And these people in their 70s and 80s who are telling their stories, and they've now been verified, and the diggings have found that their stories are absolutely true, were the age of these choir members when all of that took place. He said that he has personally interviewed 823 of them, averaging two hours each. He said, I, can, I can't do this more than two weeks at a time. I, I, I just can't stand to hear these horrible stories for more than two weeks at a time. But I believe every one of them has a right to have his or her story heard and recorded. And so in the last seven years, he's interviewed two hours at a time, no more than two weeks at a time, 823 of them. But in an interview, he was asked, okay, but seeking out these people who as teenagers were made to rearrange the bodies, who were made to shovel dirt in on top of their aunts and uncles and cousins, often mothers, fathers, brothers and sisters, do you really think this is going to make a difference? Do you really think this is going to avoid more hatred and bloodshed, uh, injustice in the world? 
I mean, when you go back to Paris, you're baptizing babies and you're confirming young people and you're saying Mass and you're making hospital calls and burying the dead. Does that really have anything to do with what happened in the Ukraine 65 years ago? And the priest said, I believe in expressing love anywhere and everywhere I possibly can. But do you believe this will make a difference? And he said, eventually, it will make a difference because my faith is not in humanity. My faith is in God. 